If you can, you know, offer the things that you're passionate about on the weekend or in your spare time or like, you know, find a way to do it online or, you know, to the degree that you can while maintaining some semblance of balance, you know, lean into that edge like I've been doing, right? Like I, I, as soon as I could start leading men's circles, I, I was leading them and I did it at the frequency that worked for me. And I started, you know, I put out the men's retreat and initially like there wasn't a lot of interest and then the interest grew over time. And so start where you're at, um, definitely be intentional about like your career path and the financial part of it, but also lean into the edge of like, what is the next frontier? What is the next horizon of you at least taking a single step in that direction? I don't think I've met any man to date that didn't desire or appreciate at some level having a strong, aligned, resilient body. And I think that's important for all people, but by and large for men specifically, especially those that are aiming to be solid and effective leaders and recognizing that leadership is an inside job. And so the healthier we are on the inside, the more that we know ourselves, the more present we can be with ourselves. From that place, it has the potential to exude out and expand exponentially, which is why my program Kettlebell Lifestyle is a holistic program that focuses, yes, on the strength, conditioning, fitness, but also our relationship to it and how we balance energy cultivating activities with energy expenditure activities, how we balance the body. So not just in the gym, but when we leave the gym or when we leave any strength training program, we leave feeling more confident, more empowered, and we feel just more comfortable and solid in our own body. If you want to get Kettlebell Lifestyle or simply learn more about it, go ahead and click the link in the show notes and there'll also be a special discount code for any listener of The Path. Welcome to The Path Podcast. I'm Mike Salemi. I believe that uncharted trails make the best life stories. So take a deep breath, put one foot in front of the other and trust the ground under your feet. Join me in discussions on health, performance, business, leadership, and spiritual self-mastery because these topics are windows into how well each of us have learned to trust our own path. Let's go. Welcome to today's episode of The Path, where we're bringing on guest John Hazim. Now, John is someone that I've met a few years ago when I was on a trip at Saltara, which is an ayahuasca medicine retreat center down in Costa Rica. And at that event, immediately, immediately, he was one of the facilitators there. I noticed and more importantly, felt this grounded, wise, safe presence that he holds when he facilitates and then outside of that container as well. And it's always stuck with me and I've always admired it. And so in today's conversation, we discussed John's journey that was very steep from an early age in medicine work. He's sat in over a hundred ayahuasca ceremonies. He's facilitated over a hundred ceremonies. And then now he's also made the transition into more focused men's work. And so we discuss the medicine journey, the role of men's work today, the historical context of it, what's missing in men's work, and what are the key things that he's found most powerful to helping men reawaken that spark from the inside out? Let's get into the show. When we first met out Saltaro, what were you doing at that point? That was in, I was thinking that was about in 2020, if I recall correctly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was almost five years ago now. Um, so it might have been just before then. Um, so yeah, by that time, I think another thing just to throw it in there, I think maybe part of how I was able to show up in that container the way I did was 
for me, it was really nice having my family there. So I was living there with my son and my partner and we had like a, a nanny and it was just like a really beautiful kind of setup to be able to facilitate and then come back and have my family there. And, and it was just a really nourishing environment. So all that said though, it was quite um, a journey to get to that moment and maybe to give you somewhat of a summarized version um, in my early 20s, which was maybe uh, five years prior to that, I was going through a, a dark period, a dark night of the soul. Um, I had just lost my grandfather, who was kind of like my father figure. Uh, just gotten out of a relationship, which by that time was like the longest relationship, the most serious relationship I'd ever been a part of. And a lot of my identity was really wrapped up in that relationship. And um, I was going to school, but I was like switching my major every semester. And I was um, smoking a lot of weed. And it was just like, I was not in the healthiest place. And I was very distraught um, by the fact that I didn't really know what I was here to do. Like I was lacking purpose. Um, and I was experiencing a lot of like symptoms of like, real serious insomnia, a social anxiety. I was always kind of an introvert, but there was like a social anxiety emerging where I was like, barely could even deal with being in like a, a crowded space or with a group of people. And I'd had some some pretty powerful experiences with psilocybin mushrooms. They actually grow here locally in, in the panhandle. And I'd heard about ayahuasca from podcasts like Aubrey Marcus and, and people like this. And I had some money saved up and I was like, let me try this, man, because I'm, I'm desperate, you know. But at that time, I didn't know anyone who had tried ayahuasca. I didn't know, you know, anything about it other than just what I'd heard from podcasts. Um, but I went and I think it was the ayahuasca, certainly, but I think it was also the willingness to take such a journey of like, you know, I had never gone by myself out of the country. You know, I didn't know Spanish. Um... And it was just like being immersed in the jungle, being, you know, seeing river otters and pink dolphins and spending time with indigenous healers. And then of course, the, the medicine itself, which had such a profound effect on me and such potent, you know, visions and experiences that um, helped to unearth a lot of like childhood trauma and just elements of my personal story that I wasn't super uh, aware of. And that completely shifted the trajectory of my life. It was just one week. It was four ceremonies. They actually included some combo in there. So that was also my first contact with combo. And it just, it was the first moment where I really felt deeply the aliveness of the universe and the way that the universe, I really felt it was in me rooting for me encouraging me. I was able to uh, come in contact with this potential that I had not felt before. And I said, I'm going to work with this. Like I have something to do here. And so I went home and I sold my car. I left my job. Uh, I got a backpack full of stuff and I got just like a one-way ticket back. And I didn't have anything lined up. My Spanish was still super underdeveloped. Um, but I had made a, you know, a couple contacts and so I just made it work. I went, I, you know, I was hanging out around Iquitos for a couple of months, but eventually I got an opportunity to volunteer somewhere uh, facilitating. 
This was at the formerly Ayahuasca Adventure Center, um, which, you know, now is Arcana, I believe is the name of it. Um, but anyways, ended up spending an, a year and a half there in Peru, facilitating in different centers, doing dietas, doing my own personal healing work, um, studying with, with different healers too, learning a bit of Shipibo. And there came a point though, where, uh, unexpectedly me and my partner, we got pregnant and, uh, we ran into some complications with the pregnancy. And so we had to return home to the States, even though we were so wanting to just live in the jungle and like dedicate our lives to this. And so I had to kind of just like reintegrate into society, even though like we didn't have a place to live and we didn't have a car. And so um, I think we were back home for maybe like a year and a half or so. And then the friends that we had, um, you know, worked for there in Peru, they were opening up Soltara. Uh, This was Dan and Melissa. And they were like, hey, we need some facilitators to like help us launch this, you know? And they were like, you can bring Ezra, you can bring your son. And I was like, oh, this, this is amazing. This is like a dream come true. So we, we went back and uh, I think we we're only there for like eight months or so, because as, as beautiful as it was, it is very challenging to have like a two, three-year-old toddler. Um, and then also just the, the workload of, you know, facilitating back-to-back retreats and these long nights of, of ayahuasca ceremonies. Um, but in a nutshell, that's kind of how I came to be in your presence and, and to be at Soltara. So it was, it was a beautiful, beautiful experience. And ayahuasca is still um, something that I'm deeply um, in gratitude for and, and has just completely shifted my life. I will say these days, it's a little bit less of a, a focal point. Um, but it, it always has just like a dear, dear place in my heart for sure. That's beautiful, man. Thank you for sharing that. You know, when I was thinking about um, what you just said and your your partner, Sylvia, what was it like, if you don't mind sharing, going through that experience, you know, with your family? You touched on how special it was, mm-hmm. but how did you find the ability to navigate that space, whether you're facilitating, because whether you're drinking the medicine or not, like you're in that energy, which is palatable yeah. and it it affects you, yeah. you know, even if you can ground down, like I imagine, like it affects me. And how did you find what either surprises, challenges, how mm-hmm. did you guys navigate that space? And what were some of the conversations or, you know, agreements that you guys came to in that, in that regard? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I will say it was incredibly challenging. I will admit, mm-hmm. I don't know if it was so great for our relationship in in some ways. I think we had like a fantasy of like, oh, we're going to live in Costa Rica. We're going to be like in this beautiful place. We're going to be working with ayahuasca, which we love. And we can essentially do ceremony whenever we like. And our son's going to be there. And we have this nanny and we're eating all this good food. And this is going to be like incredible. And it was. uh, But at the same time, again, it was just, you know, we didn't have our families, right? We didn't have the community that we were used to having, you know, mainly for supporting us with, with Ezra and the care of our son. And so um, the long nights and like Sylvia was mas- doing massage, you know, she was offering massage and I was facilitating and teaching some of the workshops and things. And so, um, and we were having to share housing because in the beginning, Soltara kind of had limited space. And, you know, 
full transparency, like me and Sylvia, we're not together. We still co-parent beautifully. And, you know, in many ways, we're as close as we've ever been. But uh, it was challenging. And, and to the cherry on top of all of that is, um, you know, unfortunately, Ezra ended up getting kind of like some kind of stomach bug. And he was born with some complications that related to like his digestion. And so he got really sick and it actually was like pretty dire. And we had to like, it was like an emergency situation where we just had to like leave in the middle of a retreat and got to Miami, got him to the hospital. And he was in the hospital for like a few days. Um, and luckily like now he's doing super well and, and everything's okay. Um, but that whole experience of that year essentially um, was, uh, had many, many incredible lessons, but it was deeply challenging for sure. I hear you, brother. Would you mind sharing a little bit about, and I know that everyone comes to this work and I know we're going to transition in a bit to men's work, but specifically sticking with your experience in whether it was in Iquitos or just, you know, Costa Rica, whatnot. What have you seen? What are some of the like underlying reasons why people are drawn to this work? Because I know you mm -hmm. said you facilitated over a hundred of these things yeah. and you've been involved in it in different regards. And so I imagine that everyone comes for a different reason. But if you were to see like the essence or any common themes, what are people coming to this work yeah. for? Yeah, I mean, you know, as you're probably pretty familiar with by now, um, the applications, like it's such a spectrum. Um, you know, we've seen cases where it's like helped heal cancers, like cancers have gone into remission. Obviously people can come also for more sort of personal reasons for like example, like myself, like deeply confused about my sense of direction, my sense of purpose. That's a big reason that people come. Sometimes people are in just transitions, right? It's kind of, it can be a very initiatory process to come spend a week or two in the jungle or in a place like Sultara and drink over the course of uh, a couple of weeks, a number of ceremonies of ayahuasca and to work with a healer and to kind of just process when whatever the underlying uh, stuff is, you know, childhood issues, et cetera. And so it can be just very physical situations. Like a lot of people would come with like very complicated autoimmune disorders where they were having trouble even getting out of bed or cancers again, or just like, I think honestly, the common thread was like people being at the end of their rope. People just like having mm. tried all these other things and nothing is working. I'm going to go fly and drink this mystical psychedelic brew and see if this helps me. Cause like, you know, I'm at my wits end, you know? And so it has so many applications. And I think honestly, when it's held well, when you have a good healer, leading it, um, when it's a safe space and people, you know, have a, a good container to take part in it and that there's like a, an earnest seeking, I think whether it's like for a physical disease or some kind of issue like that, or whether it's more just like a personal, maybe let's say a spiritual or emotional issue, um, or maybe they're processing the, the death of someone or the loss of a relationship or a loss of a sense of self. Um, it seems to meet everyone. It seems to deliver it, not necessarily in the way that people expect, but always in the way that people need. Um, and that was pretty much across the board, always my experience. Yeah, I've seen the same thing. 
and 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 what you said about people at the end of their rope, mm-hmm. I would have said the the exact same thing, maybe in different words. And it's like I've tried these medical doctors, I've tried these all these different modalities and facilitators and whatever, and like. I don't know what else. And so someone told me about this or I listened to a podcast and I'm willing to try anything. And I potentially think even, I mean, it depends potentially how attached to someone's pain they are. However, you know, when you're at, I think there's something to be said about the energy of that Mm. and like the willingness potentially to receive Mm -hmm. and allow because if we're so married to our pain or our identities wrapped into it, and it's also how in different ways there's like secondary gain or ways that we benefit. And if we've gotten to that, that end of that rope, it's like, well, fuck, like if not this, then my marriage mm-hmm. is going to fall apart or I'm going to die or whatever. And so I think meeting it in that way is a very powerful way to meet it. And you said a specific word that really I would love to hear your thoughts on. And you said something to the effect of it being like an initiatory ritual or an initiatory experience. Mm -hmm. When you feel into the word initiation, what for you comes up? Like what makes something an initiatory experience and maybe something else not? What Mm -hmm. comes up for you? Yeah, well, I'm I'm certainly reminded of like rites of passage, Um, you know, something that you know, if we're talking about like young boys to men in adulthood, something that our culture lacks um, severely. And in many ways, that's what we're recreating in a lot of these men's only experiences and these, this men's work that we do, men's retreats, for example. We're recreating these kinds of initiations. And I think some of like the core aspects of such an experience might be... Um, we're in a point of transition. We're between chapters. We're at the end of one way of being and there's something on the horizon and we don't quite know what it is yet. And there's, there's a death that needs to take place to make room for whatever that new essence, that new role, that new way of being is. And in, in that it... Um, so much that it kind of like has to do with those elements. I think oftentimes, if not always, it has to be facilitated. There has to be support. I mean, there are, there are ways that we can sort of carry ourselves through transformations, but I think a true initiation, you're being usually brought into a new role or a new way of being by people who have already experienced it. For example, like many traditional cultures and indigenous cultures, when we're looking at these rites of passages that bring boys into their adulthood, it's facilitated by elders and it's away from the tribe. And there's a number of rituals and a number of elements where they get really pushed to their limits. And then when they, if they overcome those challenges, then they're sort of um, welcomed and celebrated back as this new person or as this new, you know, having this new responsibility essentially. So I think those are like common themes, whether we're talking about, again, childhood initiatory experiences or even the ones that we might facilitate now as adults. I super appreciate that. You know, I was ref- when you were sharing um, the words of a mentor of mine came up and he said something to the effect of, uh, for him, an initiation is, uh, it's a point in which there's no turning back. Mm-hmm to the version of ourselves we were. 
and that metaphoric death so that something can be reborn. Like in order to do that, like you have to meet yourself. You have to meet the fire. Mm. And when we think about women in comparison to men as a general theme, when women have their period, like there is no going back. Mm. Like that is a very symbolic transition from girl to woman. And you can't go back from that biologically. Mm -hmm. And so with men, there might not be this physical thing that happens in our biology in that way, but um, in our psychology, yes, mm -hmm. and how that informs our biology. Mm -hmm. And so I think for men, just like what you said, it's so important to be guided in these things, to connect with, uh, I love this word, elders with a capital mm -hmm. E as opposed to just lowercase mm -hmm. E. Mm -hmm. And I think that's absolutely important. And one of the things that I want to dive into with you is, you know, what is the landscape that you're seeing with men today? And also, how did we get to where we are culturally, mm -hmm. specifically speaking to men? What comes up for yeah. you? Yeah, I mean, I can only speak to what, what I've been exposed to, um, you know, and I don't claim to be an expert on the matter. But all that said, you know, I've been facilitating men's circles for the past five years. I've led some men's retreats. I've taken part in some men's retreats. Obviously, I've been doing the work with plant medicines for much longer. Um, I think in many ways, you know, let's say over the last 100 years or so, there's definitely been an evolution where certainly, for example, let's say like the feminine was repressed culturally. Uh, where men obviously had much more of the power. Women were subjugated. You know, women couldn't vote. Um, they couldn't have bank accounts. Like they had to have be married if they wanted any level of autonomy or privilege. And obviously we've, we've come a long way. And I think that that's an, a beautiful and incredible and important thing that now women, you know, they're powerful. They can be CEOs. They can have their own businesses. They're outperforming men in many metrics um, as far as like, college and graduation and high paying jobs. Um, and again, all this is, is really good. And yet there seems to be a phenomenon taking place now where, you know, um, like women are having less children and they're like deciding this, right? Obviously there's issues with fertility, which we can get into, but um, women are, are deciding to have less children. And testosterone is lowering, right? Like over the last 20 years, it's dropped 20%. And obviously there's factors like microplastics and all these kinds of things. But I think there's also this cultural element where life is becoming so convenient, so easy. We have these smartphones, we have pornography right at our fingertips. We have dating apps that makes, it takes the challenge. It takes the the kind of edge out of many of the things that used to be so sort of daunting in some way, or at least kind of kept us sharp in a certain way. And I think we've we've gotten a bit soft. You know, I don't I don't like to use that word and I don't throw it around casually, but I think there's a way where men in many ways have become feminized. And I think you you hear that a lot too when you talk to women, where especially these women as they should be, they're very powerful, you know, um, they're very successful, um, they're making a good living. Uh, but in many ways, they might be embodying a little bit more of their masculine energy, right? And so when they're looking at the dating pool, and there's kind of like these very um, sensitive, kind of feminine, soft men, which again, some of these 
aspects are very beautiful and, and great that we can have the sensitivity and this emotional intelligence and all these things. And yet um, it makes for an interesting and maybe not so effective dynamic as far as relationships and intimacy. And you hear that a lot from women. And so I think that's been a big spur um, or a big kind of spark to like this reemergence of men's work because obviously during like the 70s, 80s, we had like Robert Bly and the mythopoetic men's movement really coming online. And then it sort of like fell off a little bit. You know, there was like these articles that were kind of criticizing men going off in the woods and doing whatever they would do. And um, Mankind Project and some of these organizations maintained the work, but I think they failed to really reach a certain demographic, right? It was mostly like older white men, kind of like the same guys that were around that same period. But now you see organizations like Sacred Sons and these other organizations where it's not just white guys, it's it's people of all ethnicities. They're doing all around, all around the world in different languages um, of all ages. And we're, it, it, again, it's kind of like being called forth because I think it's it's really necessary at this time. Um, and so hopefully maybe that speaks to the bit of the context that you're, you're trying to lay out here. Yeah, you nailed it, man. And what are you seeing with regards to the men that are being attracted to at least the circles that you're leading? Why are they showing up there? And is there any common themes that are arising within those guys? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, a lot of men are doing really good work on their own and you can do a lot of good work on your own, you know? Um, and a lot of the men that I've come in, uh, into contact with, like they've been, you know, they have therapists or they have, you know, meditation practices or they're doing their yoga or they're, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're trying to take care of themselves. But I think what I'm always, um, just very pleased to hear as, and whether it's in a men's circle or whether it's in like a men's retreat where we're kind of getting a little bit more physical, a little bit more involved is that guys just really light up and they're like, I had no idea that I was missing this, right? Like there's an element. It's not just the the friendship, which is an element. It's not just like, oh, like I, I needed some, some social connection. I needed some friends. It's like, there's something about when men get together to, to speak honestly and openly from their hearts, to sharpen each other, call each other out, hold each other accountable, to in some cases, you know, put on boxing gloves and and not to knock each other's blocks off, but to, you know, go two rounds, you know, head to head. And then also to then take a moment and breathe deeply and look into, into each other's eyes and say, you know, I see this in you, you know, I see this in you. And like, what do you see in me? And like to really breathe that in. And there's something about that that feels very sort of um, ancient in a way, it feels very kind of ancestral in a way. And I think, again, it's something that's very basic and almost fundamental to how really any culture's men probably developed, but that we've lost contact with that in these modern communities where we're so isolated. And, you know, there's only so many ways that men today really know how to connect with each other, whether it's like drinking at the pub or watching a game together. We're kind of limited in the range that we get to experience with each other. So I think it's really this just surprising, like, wow, there's something to this. And it's not just the friendships. It's like, it's awakening mm -hmm. something in me that like, I had no yeah, idea was that, I was missing. That physical contact or combat, like mm -hmm. most men and people today don't touch each other. 
Like don't don't like embrace whether it's fucking a hug right. or rolling around on a jujitsu mat. Like most now, obviously jujitsu is really growing, and mm-hmm. I think just having that connection and like feeling safe in your body and just what I heard you say is a lot of like the mm-hmm. spoken and unspoken nourishment that gets transferred from man to man when we enter in these activities. Mm-hmm. And I love what you said about something mm-hmm. inside being awakened. And I'm curious, uh, and I know, and I would love to hear a little bit more about what you do or some of maybe just like some key things that you really feel have found to be very powerful to awaken that spark in men. And I'm also curious, not to get too far ahead, but is that combat thing the most uncomfortable thing for men? Or have you found like some guys just fucking get into it? Or like, where where do you find the resistance and the awakening showing up in these experiences? (laughs) Yeah. So I think men meet a lot of different edges, um, at least in like the containers, for example, like the men's retreat that I just led recently. Um, And I'm not the only one leading these kinds of experiences. But the first thing that comes to my mind is, um, you know, because we'll we'll dive into a lot of different practices. Um, But for example, I'm reminded of a man who was very, and it was an edge for him to put on the boxing gloves and and to go, you know, he had like an injury of some sort that he was concerned about. And so it was an edge for him. Um, But it wasn't until, um, you know, we worked with the masculine archetypes. And so there's a phase in the experience where we're working with the lover archetype. And the lover has to do with, you know, just the, the enjoyment of life, the pleasures of life, Um, and so one of the things that we practice, uh, as we're like diving into that archetype is massage. And so, (laughs) you know, this guy, he has no problem putting on these boxing gloves and like taking a blow to the head. But when a man asks to have his feet rubbed, it's like, you know, he's like, that's my, he's like, I'm not going to do that. He's like, there's no, I need like a napkin. He's like, I need a towel. This is not like your feet or you've been walking around, you know? And so he ended up doing it. And like, that was actually like a powerful experience for him to, to kind of realize like, there's no reason that I shouldn't do this. And like, he just got done, you know, sharing, um, like massaging me in the way that I had asked and, and most wanted in that moment. And so, you know, why shouldn't I? But there was that resistance, right? To touch this man in a certain way because it's his feet or whatever. And so different men have their different thresholds and, you know, people are going to find different things um, challenging. But that was like the the first thing that kind of came to my mind. And I was really tickled when I kind of like acknowledged that. Now, I, I can't quite remember the phrasing of your first uh, question. I think it was some of the effect of like, what have you found to be either like hallmarks in the way that you lead or organize uh, something to that effect? Like what have you found to be those awakening moments mm-hmm. uh, or awakening activities that you see these, this the inside of these men like emerge or light up? Yeah, I mean, I think again, it's like different practices will speak to different men, you know, depending where they're at, depending what they're, you know, what they were lacking in their childhood or whatever, whatever their situation might be. I think one thing for me, and again, I've learned this from groups like the Mankind Project, from Sacred Sons, from studying on my own, like the works of like Robert Bly and, um, king warrior, magician lover, and these kinds of things. And so I, I use that, I incorporate that. Um, 
I think on a foundational level, if you're leading these kinds of experiences, you Mm. know, it's important to like be doing your own work, certainly, to be very grounded, to be very clear, to be sort of very well acquainted with your inner world and your inner landscape so that you don't have to take up much space or you can just take up just enough space. I think that, I guess, leads me to another key point as far as leading men's work in a, in a potent way, which is, you know, um, I don't think it's right if I'm going to try to lead men through some kind of grief ritual or grief ceremony. Um, I'm not just going to open the space and then point to the guy to my left and say, you know, tell me the, you know, the most terrible loss you've ever experienced. I'm going to breathe deeply into myself and I'm going to share from my heart and I'm going to let my tears flow. And I'm going to allow that to be sort of the opening of the door. And so I think that's really important. Like just being very well resourced in yourself, being grounded, being prepared. And then leading from the front, you know, a lot of this has to do with emotional intelligence. A lot of this has to do with just like opening our hearts through different means and different practices. And so to the best of our ability, just really leading from the front and being honest and being vulnerable and and being willing to be uncomfortable and being willing to to be seen um, in a moment of, of tenderness. And I think that goes a long way in cultivating trust which is a big thing, you know, if a lot of men that come to experience like experiences like these, this is kind of like the, their first taste of it. And so a lot of them are kind of curious. There are a lot of, there's a lot of like unsure about this. Like, I don't know if this is for me. I don't know who these guys are. I'm not really into the same things. And so I think when you lead with that vulnerability and that openness and that authenticity, it really disarms men. And then they feel uh, invited you know, given to your background specifically focusing so much early on in medicine work and then now more focused on men's work like why men's work like why what is it about that that is calling you so yeah. much right now and is a part of the retreats and programs that you're leading yeah great question yeah for me um you know it means so much to me because it's so deeply relevant to my own personal journey of of evolution. Um, you know, again, I, I, I told you earlier how in my early 20s, I was really suffering and I really barely knew myself. And then I discovered ayahuasca and plant medicines. And then for the next like few years, that was a big part of like my spiritual practice, you could say. And as potent and as valuable undoubtedly as plant medicines are, psilocybin and ayahuasca in my case, San Pedro to a degree as well, um, now looking back, I can see, cause I drank ayahuasca over a hundred times. I've done so many other ceremonies as well. I probably could have gotten just as far, if not further, if I would have drank a quarter of the amount of plant medicine and done a quarter more of like the actual homework of the actual integration of like the lessons that every, that like all the work that it was kind of pointing me towards, as opposed to just like going back for another ceremony. And so I think all that said, coming out of this like phase or this chapter in my life where I was doing a lot of ceremony, I was doing a lot of plant medicine work, 
Um, you know, in a lot of these containers, you're you're eating vegetarian or you're eating uh, vegan or and very and nothing against these protocols, but and I think they're very appropriate for that kind of work. But I think for me, already being a kind of an introverted, softer, raised by women man, I was already kind of feminine, and I think it actually made me it made me kind of more sensitive, more spiritual, more aware of things, but also more feminine. And I think in in my own personal context, that wasn't really great because I was struggling with discipline. I was struggling with asserting myself. I was struggling with really doing the foundational work to bring my purpose into existence. I was doing, uh, I was struggling in my relationship to take responsibility for my actions. And so it was very natural and it was, it's crazy how far I got in my personal development, which was kind of like, um, kind of not, it was right around the time actually that I met you, um, where I was already many years into this work and meditations and different things that I learned about men's work for the first time. And I, I didn't, I don't know what exactly my initial thoughts of it were, but it was just, I'd already gotten so far and I knew of like these great teachers, um, like Ramana Maharshi and I would listen to Ram Das and like, you know, I was, I felt like I was like pretty aware of certain things and none of these guys ever talked about like men's work or hanging out with men, that there's any value to it, but it felt res, uh, relevant and resonant for me. And my father was not in my life. And that was something that was uh, was becoming more obvious in my plant medicine work that that lack of that father figure and and those early relationships with men that were really kind of traumatic for me in in my personal life left me in a space where I needed to do some of that work. I needed to repair my relationship to the masculine in myself and in others. And so I did my first Mankind Project retreat sometime after, not long after we moved back to the States from Soltara. And that kind of just like opened up this door. And not long after that, um, I was leading men's circles locally and I I led a men's retreat not long after that. And it just really helped me become more well-rounded. It helped me to just kind of fill out these elements of my persona and my character that were just underdeveloped because I'd been focusing on these other areas. Um, and so just to kind of like in my personal context, and this, this isn't always the case, um, but I have seen it in others where people who are maybe men, let's say specifically in this case, who are like deeply immersed in yoga um, or plant medicine work for that matter, um, they can be quite developed in a certain way and quite sensitive and, you know, have a level of um, self-mastery, we could say. And yet they might struggle with addictions or vices or like making a, a living, like earning financially a good living or maintaining like a really healthy relationship because they're kind of like imbalanced, right? They're just a little bit too soft. They're a little bit too gooey. Sometimes you encounter these guys, it's like their spine is so like squishy. There's no, there's no kind of rigidity to them. And I think when men like this bring in the men's work and they have somebody to kind of like hold them accountable and bring them some structure 
and kind of give them a little bit of this kind of like father energy, this kind of masculine medicine, so to speak, man, they become really, really potent and really effective in their life. What would you say, John, how has this work? I'd love to bring in now just your experience of being a father. And mm. what would you say like, so Ezra's what, seven right now, more or less? He'll be seven. seven in, he'll be seven in December. Wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> so you had him in the States, but what's the journey been like for you going from medicine work to men's work, now having a son who's seven? How has this work supported you and your family and really showing up and or what have you been, what along the way were, have you been pushing up against? Like where, where have your edges been and what did that look like for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great, great question. Um, he's been absolutely one of my best teachers, <laughs> undoubtedly by far. Um, again, you know, like I didn't have my father growing up and it's only in recent years, honestly, that I've reconnected with him and have some semblance of a relationship with him. And a lot of my early relationships, like with my grandfather and with my brother, you know, they just, they were challenging to say the least. And so honestly, for example, like when I found out that we were going to have Ezra and that I was going to be a father, it was like traumatic for me because I had no idea what a father was. I never knew my father. And I was, I think there was a fear in me of just that utter unknown and the fear of like not being able to do it well. Um, And so from the very beginning, it was, he was, he's been such a catalyst for my evolution. And through our relationship too, with me and Sylvia and just like everything that we had to navigate from living in the jungle and like living our best life to realizing we were going to have complications to moving back home and having him and, having to kind of like build our life from scratch to then going to Soltara and like living this kind of fantasy for a moment and then having to come back. And then now, you know, we've separated and, and again, we're, we're co-parenting beautifully. Like she is still one of my dearest, dearest friends. I do feel like we're as close as we've ever been. Um, But all along the way, like it's been challenging, you know, as you know, with a young child, like it takes a lot of bandwidth Um, just to care for a child's basic needs, let alone if you're trying to work a nine to five, let alone if you're struggling with your own sense of purpose or you're feeling unmet or you just don't have the capacity to, you know, take care of yourself and you're feeling, you know, out of your window of tolerance more of the time and you're so is your partner and there's resentments that build up. And yeah, it was challenging to say the least. And So now in the wake of us separating, where one of the most beautiful elements of that is that we've been able to maintain our friendship because we've been very intentional about the process, is that now we have a lot more room. And of course, now like it's it's been uh, a few years almost that we've since we've separated. But I just want to speak to the fact, you know, I I know this is something that comes up for a lot of people when they're facing challenges. And I'm not necessarily one to encourage people to separate, you know, right away. Um, but sometimes allowing some space where you can breathe and you're not on top of each other and you can seek support from others and you can get resourced and you can sort through your shit without somebody kind of like being on top of you, it can really help you get clear on what's what 
and what do you really desire and and do we want to be together or do we really feel you know called to to some other future and i think sometimes people don't afford themselves that that space it's either like we're just going to you know stick it out and just like force our way through or we're just going to separate and we're going to kind of be like enemies in some weird way and i i always feel just um you know, a bit of sadness when I see people who have children, but they don't have like an amicable, loving relationship, because I think that it's entirely possible, even if you don't, you know, stay together in that way. Um, so to speak specifically to your question, as far as like Ezra, you know, he's been kind of at the crux of all this. And so now, you know, for somebody who like didn't know their father, and who now I can see how that affected me so deeply. And I was so underdeveloped in all these ways because I just completely lacked this positive masculine figure in my life. To be actively um, supporting my son, to be consciously watching him and seeing what he's good at and seeing where, where he wants to move into. Um, like for example he loves to wrestle. He's so physical. And yet we tried to get him into like soccer and other sports. And he's just like not been super interested. And we did our first jujitsu class last week together. Um, and I'm very new to this too, but I just threw on a gi and I was like in there with the kids and stuff. And like the way that that lights me up and opens my heart, I cannot put into words. And the way that I can see so vividly that like, that's literally like the breaking of an ancestral trauma, right? Like an ancestral wound. Um, because I know that the reason, the only reason that my father could be so absent for, absent for me was because in some way he lacked that, that nourishment in his own life. And so now to have the opportunity and to be well-resourced enough to actually like consciously care for my son and like weave in these elements of like this men's work and all the things that I'm aware of as far as what's important for a young boy. Um, it makes it so meaningful. It makes it so enjoyable. Um, I mean, even if, even if he was like a little girl, like it would be just as beautiful, but there's something so deeply meaningful to me in my personal life story that I get to share this journey with my son, that I get to see myself grow. I get to see him grow. You know, like nobody ever put me in sports, for example, um, my family was not really athletic and they, for whatever reason, they never saw sports or this kind of thing as something that was, was valuable. And now like, I love being active. I love being physical. I wish I would have had it sooner. And I get to like curate the experience for my son and share in it with him. And it, again, it's just so deeply nourishing and enjoyable. Um, so just to say, you know, to put a, a cherry on top, it's one of, he is one of the most beautiful elements of my entire life. <laughs> I feel you big time, brother, on that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Luca at this point is about to turn nine months. And what a surprise, mm -hmm. man. What a surprise uh, in terms of the level of just nourishment, purpose, 
I mean, I wake up in the morning and I wake up to this little guy literally crawling all over my neck and just like, there's no alarm clock needed. This little guy's up. There's no, I just said, you know, I used to have the phone on airplane mode for an alarm. Fuck that. The the phone can go in the other room because I know between 5 and 6 a.m. I'm going to have coos and caws and and drool on me. Mm -hmm. And there's something really... um, profound being a father and it's brought for me personally a level of um purpose for sure and in a way that i didn't quite expect uh kind of like power boosters like it's it's as tired as i am Mm -hmm. and as stretched and challenged in many many moments I always resort back to like this honest question. Is there more? Is there more in me to give? Is there more in me to lead? Is there more love Mm. in me? Is there more? And so far, 10 times out of 10, even when I don't think so, when it's for my son, there's always more. Yeah. And that is like, that has been, yeah, some power boosters are a superpower Mm. for me that has been, super surprising and humbling. And um, yeah, it's just been such an incredible ride so far. So as a father and doing this work, what are you excited about next? You know, whether it's in fatherhood or outside, but really he's seven. What are you, what are you looking forward to? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's so, that's so beautiful. And I can relate to that so deeply. Um, And I just want to add, you know, like as, you know, a somewhat single dad, the weeks that I, cause we do like every other week I, I have my son, the weeks that I have him, you know, I'm working full time. I'm doing my extracurricular stuff. I'm doing like my men's work or whatever projects I might be working on. I'm getting up with him. I'm getting him ready. I'm making his breakfast and I'm making him a good ass breakfast. You know, I got them <laughs> pasture raised eggs and I'm making a bacon and I'm making, yes. you know, all this good stuff. Yes. And I'm making his lunch like fresh that morning, you know, so he's like, he's got everything he needs. Take him to school, get in, getting my workout in, getting to work, getting him off of work. Now we're going to be doing jujitsu before it was soccer, getting home, making sure he gets his homework, uh, giving him just enough screen time, but also some time with, with me and him. Sometimes we'll do like some breathing or we'll do like a little yoga we'll, you know, we'll read a book or something. But to your point, it's like, it's so much for me on top of everything else, right? I'm already maxed out. And yet for him, it's like, I have unlimited potential. And I think for anybody out there, you know, who's like thinking about it, or maybe they don't know if they want a kid. It is such, like you said, just like a power booster and up leveler. You know, I'm taking my life so much more seriously. I feel um, so motivated and so just jazzed up to kind of like be taking these steps to this next level. Um, And so really for me, uh, to, to answer your question more specifically, um, on the horizon personally, and probably in like the springtime um, of next year, I have some some pretty beautiful financial abundance. Some, some financial abundance is on the horizon for me. And I think that that's going to really allow me some opportunities that I haven't had as of yet. Um, and I think soon enough, I'll be able to move away from like working full time and working 40 plus hours a week and be able to like have that time with him, you know, cause like I want to take him to, I would love to like go for a week and just go to like a national park with him or like 
you know, take him traveling and just like spend like one-on-one, like real intimate time. And, and we do like camping trips and we do what we can as we can now. But I guess for me on the horizon, it's, it's taking my career to the next level so that I can have more time and more flexibility to just really start to get intentional about the experiences that not only I get to have, but that I get to share with him. Um, and so that I can watch him develop and I can pay attention and, and really um, make room for him to have experiences that are going to allow him to blossom, you know, into whatever the thing is that he's uh, trying to be in this life. And so that, again, that's, that's deeply motivating for me. Mm, I love hearing that. And, you know, I definitely want to get to before we close out some of the offerings that you have and, you know, any upcoming events and how people can contact you. And I definitely want to hear, if you're open to it, your thoughts mm. around, see if the best way I can word this is, how have you found navigating you know, I know you enjoy your work like we were chatting right before, uh, your nine to five. And mm-hmm. I imagine that the men's work and this work, like I would imagine you, please correct me if I'm wrong, but like the level of meaning or purpose may be similar, may be completely different. But I hear a lot of men this challenge of like, how do I balance, you know, uh, a passion or where I feel most alive and of service with the world, but recognizing that where I'm at right now financially isn't where I need to be. So I'm doing this Mm -hmm. other job, whether I enjoy it or not. Can you share some insights into how that's been for you and any insights for some of the men that may be struggling with that? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I appreciate the invitation because it it is personally relevant and relevant to a lot of the men that I encounter uh, in this space. So, you know, for me, um, professionally, as far as my career, you know, it didn't, it didn't really do many favors um, to take the, all the years off that I took to go live in Peru uh, and to go live in Sultara um, and facilitate ayahuasca ceremonies. Like, I don't necessarily put that on my resume, you know? <laughs> and so um, <laughs> it's been quite a journey to get to the point where I have a nine to five that actually like pays me at the level that I feel like supports my lifestyle, supports my projects, my side hustle, if I could call it that, um, allows me the flexibility to spend time with my son um, and to just do the things that I wish to do. And in many ways, I'm still limited. And in many ways, it's still not meeting me. And that's where like over, I think the course of this next year or so, that's it's going to be changing. I'm really meeting a threshold here. But to answer your question, you know, different guys are going to be coming from different starting points, right? Some of us went to really great colleges. Some of us did not go to college. Some of us did not finish high school. Some of us got a degree in something that's completely unrelevant to what we're pursuing or what we're involved in. Some of us are in industries that pay super, super well. Some of us are in sort of undervalued uh, positions. And so I think one thing that's important is just like being like really real with where you're at, And, you know, maybe if you need some support or you need some guidance, you know, finding somebody that can help you. Because for example, like I've, I've talked to guys who, you know, they're, they're kind of like really scraping by. And when you get to know them, like they've actually done a lot of incredible things, but they don't even have a resume put together. And so it's like, okay, what are the resources that you need to kind of put together and what structure do you need? 
Um, and what, and do you need any kind of emotional, personal resources to kind of like get yourself together to go do the job interviews or to go online and find the jobs, et cetera? Because yes, you might not be able to go straight away into full-time men's work or coaching or whatever the modality might be, but there's probably a pathway that can get you there sooner than later, but you're, you're likely going to be very, you're going to have to be very intentional about it. Um, and so I think that that, you know, hopefully can be supportive to some men. I will say for me, you know, I'm in sales and I've, I've been, you know, for the past five, six years now and just, you know, I've been very intentional and I've been like every couple of years, I either get a promotion or I'm going to a new company and I'm getting a raise and I have like certain goals in mind as far as, um, salary and this kind of thing. And like, I've made these incremental steps and now I'm like right at the threshold because I've been working at it for five years where I'm going to be able to do more full time, the work that I love and the work that I'm passionate about. And it is, Certainly, as much as I love the work that I do as far as my nine to five, it's nowhere near as nourishing, deeply satisfying, purposeful, and meaningful to me as the work that I do with men and as the one-on-one -on -one, one -on -one work that I do with, with men and women. And so, um, yes, I think in this day and age, it's just an unfortunate truth that we're, we're in the economy, we're in the system that we're in, and we just kind of have to meet ourselves where we are reach out for the support if we can find it as far as like somebody that can maybe help guide us who's maybe a little bit ahead of us or somebody in our local community in the same industry and then start taking those steps, you know, but it might take some time. And that's, that's, I think where that masculine component has to come in too. It's like, you might not get to do your favorite thing next week, right? You're going to maybe have to stick through something for a year, two years, three years before you get to build your business or do whatever the thing is, um, but it's going to be worth it. And if you put in that work, it's going to be fucking sweet. So, you know, that's that's my my little two cents there. That last piece is, for me at least, so spot on because now speaking from personal experience, I was in the family business, marbling granite industry for eight years. I was doing the side hustle and teaching always, didn't stop that. But what it did or one of the things that it did, like it was... It felt in many ways, not in all ways, but it felt like a sacrifice. It felt like I was, you know, and, and I really have just continually returned back to the definition, or at least that resonates with me, is to sacrifice means to make sacred. Mm. And I know that I would appreciate, I've always loved health and fitness and uh, inner exploration, whatever you want to call it, facilitating but I tell you fucking what, putting eight years in an office mm. and in a cubicle, even though it was my family business and there's many beautiful aspects, I was always thinking about like, how is this going to mm -hmm. get me to, when will be the time that I make that leap into really yeah. going in all in on my heart's purpose and why I'm fucking here. And that it was like, um, I don't know, that was like nutrition or fuel mm. or like, mm -hmm. so that now... I mean, honestly, like even in my meditations, fucking thank myself, the mm. world, everything that took me to this point, because I do not take being able to do what I do for granted. And it yeah. means so much to me to be able to show up from this place because I know, I know what I sacrificed to get here. Mm. doesn't matter what anybody else knows about me, but I remember many of those mm -hmm. nights, seven days a week, late 11 o'clock mm -hmm. in the warehouse with my brother and working. Mm -hmm. And like, so I've got those memories and it's like, fucking right. I love what I do. Mm -hmm. I'm going to keep doing it. And it provides that like 
discipline and that sacrifice mm-hmm. behind something. Uh, oh, yeah. So I really appreciate what you shared there at the end. Oh, likewise, dude. Amen, man. And yeah, it's 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 awesome to hear a little bit of your backstory too. And I think, like you said, it just it just sweetens the story, just makes it mean so much more. And, and just one little highlight that I feel like I failed to to mention that I think you did beautifully there is that, yeah, like you know, if you can, you know, offer the things that you're passionate about on the weekend or in your spare time or like you know, find a way to do it online or, you know, to the degree that you can while maintaining some semblance of balance, you know, lean into that edge like I've been doing, right? Like I, I, as soon as I could start leading men's circles, I, I was leading them and I did it at the frequency that worked for me. And I started, you know, I put out the men's retreat and initially like there wasn't a lot of interest and then the interest grew over time. And so start where you're at um, definitely be intentional about like your career path and the financial part of it, but also lean into the edge of like, what is the next frontier? What is the next horizon of you at least taking a single step in that direction? Amen, brother. Amen. So my man, where can people find you? What do you got coming up? Uh, let's connect people with some of uh, any anything you got going on. Yeah. So primarily these days, I'm most active on Instagram, honestly. Um, and that's going to be uh, John, J-O-H-N underscore Hazim, my last name, H-A-Z-I-M. Um, to be honest with you, my nose is to the grindstone <laughs> over really like the the winter and this Q4. So um, I do offer like one-on-one uh, work, mainly from like a somatic perspective, mostly with men. I do work with women. Um, mostly in person, though I do some remote work as well. That's some work that I'm deeply passionate about. Honestly, the one-on-one container is where in many ways I feel like I'm most effective. And so if that's something that interests you, you can just reach out to me on Instagram. Um, otherwise, you know, follow me on Instagram. There's, I definitely feel like there's going to be a lot bubbling up for 2024 uh, and beyond. But for right now, I'm kind of just low-key spending time with my son, doing some jujitsu, you know, stacking up some money so that then I can make that, that big shift for next year. So yeah, mainly Instagram for now. Hell yeah, brother. Well, I'm so one grateful for this conversation, grateful for the work that you're doing and the fact that we just so happened to meet in Costa Rica years ago (laughs) and, you know, we got to spend some time together. So it's beautiful Mm -hmm. to hear how you're doing Ezra and all the work that you're doing. So thank you again, brother. Really appreciate you. Oh, thanks for having me, man. It, it's so beautiful to see everything that you're putting out there. Um, I think it's it's been really cool to watch you go from like, at least from what I've been aware of, like main, maybe for you mainly focused in like the fitness realm. But then I, I saw you like offering some combo and like doing some, <laughs> some, some plant medicine stuff. And then now into the men's work, which has been very similar to my journey as well. And so it's been cool to watch you and to see you take advantage of your platform and, and your stage and, and to offer people like myself a, a, a platform too, to, to just share a little bit about my story and what I do. Um, it's really inspiring and I'm really grateful. So thank you. You're welcome. And thank you, brother. Wonderful. Catch you later, my friend. All right. Take care, man. Have a good night. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow the podcast on Apple and leave a review. It means a lot. We all have a path and I'd love to hear how this podcast has inspired you in some way to live yours.